You're listening to The Elegant Mind, broadcast on KAPY Valley Radio 104.9 FM, serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley, Washington State, communities of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge, and all points in between. My name is Mark Winwood, and I am your host. Thank you for listening in. The topic of today's program is one that perhaps many people find morbid or something not to talk about, to avoid, to make believe it doesn't happen, and that is the subject of death and dying. From its inception, Buddhism has stressed the importance of death, since awareness of death is what prompted the Buddha to perceive the ultimate futility of worldly concerns and pleasures. Realizing that death is inevitable for a person who's caught up in worldly pleasures and attitudes, he resolved to renounce the world and devote himself to finding a solution to this most basic of existential dilemmas. After years of diligent and difficult practice, Siddhartha became enlightened, and through this he transcended the suffering associated with death. The Tibetan mind sciences and the practices of Buddhism place a particularly strong emphasis on instructions concerning death, and Tibetan literature is full of admonitions to be aware of the inevitability of death, the preciousness of the opportunities that a human birth presents, and the great value of mindfulness of death. A person who correctly grasps the inevitability of death becomes more focused on spiritual practices since he or she realizes that death is inevitable. The time of death is uncertain, and so every moment of life counts. This attitude epitomizes the ideal for a Buddhist practitioner, according to many teachers. Atisha is said to have told students that for a person who is unaware of death, meditation has little power but a person who is mindful of death and impermanence progresses steadily and makes the most of every precious moment. A famous saying of the school he founded, the Kadam School, holds that if one does not meditate on death in the morning, the whole morning is wasted. If one doesn't meditate on death at noon, the afternoon is wasted. And if one doesn't meditate on death at night, the evening is wasted. So we know, in stark contrast to this attitude, most people frantically run after transitory pleasures and material objects, foolishly believing that wealth, power, friends, and family will bring lasting happiness. This is particularly prevalent in Western cultures like ours, which emphasize superficial images of happiness, material and sensual pleasures, and technological innovation as avenues to fulfillment. We are taught to crave such things, but inevitably find that the wealthy and powerful die just as surely as the poor and powerless. We try to cover up the signs of aging through cosmetics and surgery. We attempt to hide the reality of death by putting makeup on corpses to make them appear lifelike. We're even taught to avoid discussion of death, since this is seen as being inappropriate in polite company and overly morbid. Instead, people tend to focus on things that turn their attention from death and surround themselves with images of superficial happiness. From its inception, the Tibetan mind sciences, Tibetan Buddhism, the life science of the Tibetan plateau, emphasizes a far different course. Anyone who has studied with Tibetan lamas has been regularly reminded of the importance of the mindfulness of death. Teachings on death and impermanence are found in every facet of Tibetan Buddhist teaching, and any student who tries to overlook them is soon reminded that Dharma practice requires a poignant awareness of death. Buddhist teachings emphasize the idea that although one's destiny is always influenced by past karma, every person has the ability to exercise free will and influence the course of both life and death. We all shape our own destinies, and in every moment there are opportunities for spiritual advancement. According to many Buddhist texts, death presents us with a range of important possibilities for progress. Buddhist insights and meditation texts point out that we have ample evidence of death all around us, since everything is changing from moment to moment. A person wishing to ponder death need not go to a cemetery or a funeral home. Death is occurring everywhere and at all times. Even the cells of our body are constantly being born and dying. All of us are inexorably moving toward physical death in every moment. Since every created thing is impermanent, everything we see, hear, touch, taste, love, despise, or desire is in the process of dying. 
There is nothing to hold on to, nothing that remains unchanged from moment to moment. And so anyone who tries to find happiness among transient created things is doomed to disappointment. This transiency is the reason why we're prone to unhappiness and suffering, since everything we desire eventually breaks down and we often have to put up with things that we find unpleasant. But this impermanence, this evolution, this constant change is also essential for liberation, since the constant changing nature of cyclic existence makes progress possible. Every moment presents opportunity to train the mind in the direction of awakening, and since there is no fixed element to personality, every person, every person is constantly engaged in the process of becoming something else. So, yeah, we fall into patterns of behavior. It becomes all too easy to become caught up in our self-centered, our self-oriented patterns. But since every moment is a rebirth, there's always an opportunity to initiate change. A wise person, according to Chagdad Tulgu Rinpoche, understands the imminence of death and plans ahead. Plan ahead, you may ask? How does one plan ahead? Well, first is the understanding that everyone dies, that death is a fate that awaits us all. And this understanding shouldn't result in passivity or resignation or morbidity, but rather it should spur us to greater diligence in our wholesome practices, our meaningful practices, the way we live our lives. Every moment of our life should be viewed as being infinitely precious, and we should make the utmost effort to use our time to the best advantage. After making this decision to use our time in this way, we consider the uncertainty of the time of death and decide that it might occur at any moment, and since it might occur at any moment, the resolve to make the utmost effort to use our time to the very best advantage emerges. And then once this happens, we consider the uncertainty of the time of death, decide that we should begin practicing. We should begin being aware and mindful of what we're doing and why we're doing it immediately. We don't put this off into the future, but we begin right now. A person who thinks, well, I'll wait until the children are grown, or after I finish this semester, I'll begin meditating, or I don't just have enough time right now, will probably never get around to doing this. And even if he or she does, the attention that we pay and the, the diligence that we employ will very likely be half-hearted. So a person who wishes to make real progress should feel a strong sense of urgency, like a person caught in a burning house looking for a way out, the teachings say. The next stage in this process is coming to understand that at the time of death, only our wholesome accomplishments, only the beneficial inclinations that we've placed on our mind will be of any worth. Our material possessions, our friends and relatives, our worldly acclaim and power all vanish. None of it is of any use to us. Everything is left behind. None of it can be carried over into next life. Moreover, our future birth will be determined, the place and the conditions of our future birth will be determined by our actions in this life. So we should resolve to practice meditation, awareness, mindfulness, walking a path of wholesome, non-harming, generous behavior in this life. And yes, beginning immediately. It's also important by the Tibetan ideas not to think that in one's next lifetime one will be necessarily born as a human being. According to the teachings, a human life is very rare. It's much more likely that we'll be born in some other life situation. And if this happens, our chances for becoming aware of the problems of cyclic existence and everyday living and seeking a solution to the challenges of everyday living are greatly diminished. So we are now human beings. We are intelligent enough to recognize the problems and sufferings of cyclic existence, unlike lower types of beings such as animals. And we're not so overwhelmed by either suffering or happiness that we're blinded to the realities of our everyday life. 
A person who understands this situation is ready to prepare to become keenly aware of death and resolve to extract the essence of this present life. So with that, I'm going to talk about a text that you might have heard of. It has the popular name of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, although that is an inaccurate translation of the title. The title of this work is the Bardo Total, B-A-R-D-O-T-H-O-D-O-L, which translates in English most closely to liberation upon hearing. And this is a very, very interesting book. Again, it's popularly known as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and this is a text that appeared in 14th century Tibet. Its authorship is attributed to Padmasambhava, an Indian master who's said to have brought Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century. And the story is that this book was hidden by Padmasambhava because he understood that the general population was not ready for these instructions yet, that the the Buddhist teachings and understandings and realities and insights needed to be cultivated, needed to be worked into the culture, the everyday culture, before this book could truly be used and appreciated. So he hid the book and it was discovered somewhere around 500 years after he passed on the Bardo Total. In summary, it's a spiritual manual that assists lamas in preparing a dying person for the experiences that they will encounter in the after-death state, in the dying state, and then what occurs after death. It's believed that by understanding what is happening in this after-death state and not losing awareness, the deceased will win ultimate liberation, freeing themselves from the cycle of birth and death. You know, it's a funny thing. I've been sharing Tibetan teachings for over, well, like almost 14 years now since I first started doing this in Florida and am now here in Duval. And overwhelmingly, when I ask people, you know, what brings you here? Why? What are you interested in? What about the Tibetan ideas interests you the most? What I hear time and time again is, well, I'm interested in reincarnation. I like the idea that, well, I'm going to die, but I'm not really going to die. I'm paraphrasing. I like the idea of knowing that I'm going to come back as, as an eagle soaring over the forest or as a powerful salmon swimming through the deep oceans or... Uh, whatever it might be. I want to learn more about this reincarnation thing. And then as we begin to understand more and more about what the teachings say and where the practices lead us, we come to the realization that, well, it's this rebirth that we're trying to avoid, that what we're really looking to do is we're trying to free our minds. We're trying to clarify our minds of, of delusion and ignorance and self-centeredness all of which will lead to no more rebirth, no more cyclic existence, no more reincarnation. So it's kind of funny how that developed. And again, I've, I've seen it often. So if the idea of reincarnation is something or rebirth is really something that appeals to you and you want to learn more about it, what it is or what it isn't and how it works or how it doesn't work, and perhaps most importantly, what determines where and how your rebirth, your mind's rebirth, or if you'd like to call it your soul or your spirit, but your mind's rebirth, how and where that is going to take place, what are the conditions for that, and how can you now best benefit that occurring, the conditions of that occurring? What can you do now? The Tibetan life sciences, mind sciences, are the place to start. And as you may know, we're here in Duval, we're the Chenrizik Project, and we meet on Thursdays at Longevity Foods on 203 across from Subway in Duval. More information about us can be obtained at our website, www.chenrizikproject.org, C-H-E-N-R-E-Z-I-G project, all one word, chenrizikproject.org, or you can send an email to the elegant mind at valley1049.org. Just request information. I will get that email and I'll be happy to be in touch with you. I can send you information about rebirth and reincarnation, answer your questions, do whatever you would like. So, so 
With that, the Bardo Total, this text, it's so interesting. It's a guidebook that is read to someone. It's a navigational map text that is read to someone who is dying and then is read to their mind after their mind has departed from the body. And it tells them, it guides them into what they're experiencing and how to best experience and navigate what it is that is occurring to the mind that is in the process of separating itself from the body, which is what death is. It's the separation of mind and body. The partnership no longer is able to be maintained. The body is is kind of flaking out and the mind is off. The mind is, is off to find its next incarnation. So I'm going to read a bit from the Bardo Total, translated obviously into English, just to give you a sense of what this is all about. Again, it's a, it's a spiritual manual, and the idea is that by understanding what one is experiencing and not losing awareness, one can best navigate the Bardo, the transitional period, the Bardo, between the death of this life and the rebirth of the next. So after death, a sentient being, a person for purposes of this discussion, enters an up to 49-day intermediate state. It's between the end of one's life and the beginning of another. And at this time, the person's mind that has been properly prepared can attain a freedom. And if that does not happen, he or she will remain. That mind will remain in the cycle of rebirth. And just to give you a flavor of how the Bardo Total, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, reads. I'm going to read an excerpt. You can picture the scene if you'd like. There's a person who is lying on a bed, and they are very, very close to death, surrounded by family members usually, if that's appropriate. And there is a lama who is speaking to the dying person. Everyone is quiet. There's no crying going on. Everything is quiet so the person can hear these words. Again, remember that even modern science has put forth that of all our senses, the sense of taste and touch, and hearing and smell and sight. Of all our senses, it's the sense of hearing that is the very, very last to go. The very last sense to go is our sense of hearing. So the idea is that the person who's in the dying state, whether they're showing a response or not, is very likely able to hear these words and perhaps hopefully to be able to concentrate on these words. So this is the Lama now speaking to the dying person. I now transmit to you the profound teaching which I myself have received from my teachers. Pay attention to it now, and do not allow yourself to be distracted by other thoughts. If you suffer, do not give in to the pain. The factors which made up the person known as, and then their name, are about to disperse. Your mental activities are separating themselves from your body and they are about to enter the intermediate state. Rouse your energy so that you may enter this state self-possessed and in full consciousness. First of all, there will appear to you, swifter than lightning, the luminous splendor of the colorless light of emptiness, and that will surround you on all sides. Terrified, you will want to flee from the radiance. Try to submerge yourself in the light, giving up all belief of a separate self, all attachment to your illusory ego. If you miss liberation at that moment, you will be forced to have a number of further dreams, both pleasant and unpleasant. Even they offer you an opportunity to gain understanding, but you must know that all you perceive is a mere vision, a mere illusion, and does not reflect any really existing objects. Have no fear and form no attachments. Three and one half days after your death, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas will appear to you. Wonderful and delightful though they are, they may nevertheless frighten you. Do not give in to your fright. Do not run away. Pray to them with intense faith and humility, and in a halo of rainbow light, you will merge into the heart of the Buddhas and take your abode in their realms. And on it goes. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bardo Total, it's fairly long. 
And again, by the Tibetan practices, this text is read every day for up to 49 days. It said that it takes up to 49 days for the mind that has departed one incarnation to take its rebirth in another. It can happen very quickly, or it can take up to 49 days, because the mind has to be prepared, it has to be cleansed, it has to be scrubbed clean of all opinions and ideas and memories and so on, which will have no place in the next life. Will have no place in the next life. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bardo Total, it talks about the clear light and emptiness. It talks about the mental body. It talks about the incarnate, not the incarnation so much, but the emanation of Yama, who is the figure that is associated with death, really a, a symbol of karma. And then there are a series of lights that will appear. Each of these lights corresponds to a particular destination and a white light and a red light and a green light and a blue light. And then the idea is to go toward the most beneficial, to be drawn, karmically propelled, to be drawn to the most beneficial light. And the Bardo Total stresses over and over and over that the free consciousness the mind that is in between vehicles, in between physical incarnations, physical vehicles, that the mind, the consciousness, only has to hear and remember the teachings in order to be liberated. It's a very interesting text, and I am planning to actually conduct a retreat probably in January, a local retreat, residential retreat in the Duval area in the valley, Friday night, all day Saturday, and then half of Sunday, a retreat on the Tibetan practices of dying death and rebirth. This is a program that I conducted a couple of times in Florida. It was very well received and very, very interesting. We'll do teachings, we'll do meditations and, and so on. There'll be more about this in the days to come, and there'll certainly be more about this on the website, www.chenrezigproject.org. So just a conclusion here about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Interestingly, some of you know of Carl Jung. Carl Jung was the Swiss psychologist. He was not officially a Buddhist, but oh my gosh, so many of his ideas, so many of his insights and his practices are in line with the Buddhist ideas and the Buddhist practices. This is a quote that Dr. Jung put forth about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bardo Total. He said, the Bardo Total began by being a closed book, and so it has remained, no matter what type of commentaries have been written about it. For it is a book that will only open itself to spiritual understanding, and this is a capacity that no man is born with, but which can only be acquired through special training and special experience. It is good that such to all intents and purposes useless books exist. They are meant for those queer folk who no longer set much store by the uses, aims, and meaning of present-day civilization. So I guess what uh, Dr. Jung is saying is that the Bardo Total, the Book of the Dead, is not for everyone, but it's for people who think along a certain way or don't think along certain ways. It's uh, it, it's a quote that's meant to be, I think, a positive, a positive quote about the book, and it always makes me smile when I read it. So again, this is Mark Winwood, and you're listening to The Elegant Mind on Valley 104.9 FM in the Lower Stoquamie Valley of Washington State. We're going to listen to some music as we do each week from Bobby Vega, Bay Area musician and a friend of this program. Then when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion. We're going to talk about what the teachings say in terms of what is experienced. What's experienced as we die? What does it feel like physically? What does it physically feel like when we die? We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the mind goes through as death approaches and death occurs. So we're going to talk body and mind, the dying process here on The Elegant Mind, 
In the meantime, here's some music. The name of this tune is Mothra, M-O-T-H-R-A, Mothra. Some of you may be familiar with Mothra. He was the giant moth that was the subject of the Japanese science fiction movie. You know, he's in the cavalcade of Japanese monsters like Rodan and Godzilla. Here's Mothra. And this is Bobby Vega accompanied by Chris Rosbach. I hope you enjoy the music and I'll see you on the other side.
Okay, so that was Mothra, as performed by Bobby Vega and Chris Rossback, a couple of San Francisco Bay Area musicians. Bobby is the composer of that song and plays the bass. Chris is on the guitar. So we've been talking about death, death and dying, hopefully not in a, uh, again, in a morbid way or in a depressing way, but actually in a quite liberating way to understand, to know that everything is impermanent, everything that comes together falls apart, that death is inevitable for each of us and for everyone we know, our pets, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our enemies, people we've never met, animals and so on, that death is inevitable and the Tibetan notions of preparing for that so that when it does occur, the very best conditions can take place is an intrinsic part of the Tibetan mind sciences, the Tibetan Buddhist practices. So in order to really think about or consider the experience of dying, it's important to understand the Tibetan traditions of how things exist. There's a lot to this, and I'm going to try to summarize it as best I can. Basically, everything consists of the five elements. The five elements are space, wind, fire, water, and earth. All phenomena, anything, internal or external, on the subtle level or the gross level, their formation, their destruction, and their existence depend on these five elements, space, wind, fire, water, and earth. Our own body consists of numberless particles formed by these elements. Again, space, wind, fire, water, and earth. The way to look at these elements, it's not to think about them as being like atoms or molecules or particles, but rather they're principles or forces. So corresponding from the force to the material, earth corresponds to mass, water corresponds to fluidity, fire to temperature, and wind to movement. And then space allows these elements to exist and interact. Again, earth to mass, water to fluidity, fire to temperature, wind to movement, and then space allows all of these to merge together and to interact. So in the Tibetan traditions, there are different systems that explain these elements. There's medical systems, there's astrological systems, there's tantric systems, and so on. Apparently between these systems, there's very little difference, but if we look carefully as students of these practices do, their workings are very similar. The element characteristics also show their function. Earth gives solidity, weight, and mass. Water provides fluidity and cohesion. The power of the water is to keep things together, like when you mix water with flour. Wind is movement. Every movement depends on the wind element. Fire is the temperature, what ripens. And lastly, as I said earlier, space allows these elements to interact and grow and transform. So in the body, when the five elements, the five energies are in harmony, there's health, development, and growth. When they're out of balance, the result is sickness and destruction. So according to the Tibetan understandings, beliefs, and perspectives, of the dying process, what happens is in sequence, these elements dissolve. They begin to dissolve into one another. And there is quite a lot of information about, well, what dissolves and what is the effect? What does that feel like when this begins to occur? So I'm going to, again, from a very topical level, I'll run through these cycles of dissolution of the elements in the human body. So what happens first is that our earth element, that mass element, begins to dissolve. 
And again, this includes the hard factors of the body, such as our bones. So our body becomes thinner, our limbs loosen. We begin to sense that our body is sinking into the earth. It feels like we're sinking into the earth. Our limbs become smaller. Our body becomes weaker and powerless. Our sight becomes unclear and dark. And internally, we begin to have appearances, images of mirages, things that we're seeing in our mind's eye but are not really there. There becomes a difficulty in opening or closing our eyes. And as the luster of our body diminishes, our strength becomes consumed. That's as the earth element dissolves, and it dissolves into the water element. So the second cycle of dissolution is the water element dissolving. These are the liquid factors of the body. So what does that mean? Well, saliva and sweat and urine and blood and internal fluids begin to dry. Our body consciousness can no longer experience the types of feelings that accompany our sense consciousness. Those feelings are pleasure, pain, or even neutrality. One is no longer mindful of the feelings that accompany mental consciousness. Our hearing of external or internal sounds begins to diminish. And internally, there may be an appearance in the mind's eye of smoke, of some type of smoke to the dying person. The third cycle of dissolution is when the fire element begins to dissolve. It dissolves into the wind element. So what does that mean? Well, here's what's experienced. One cannot digest food or drink very easily as the fire element is dissolving. One is no longer mindful of the affairs of close people. If you've spent time with someone who is close to death, sometimes they're, they're not really aware of your being there or your concerns or your presence. This is said to occur due to the fire element, the internal factors beginning to dissolve accordingly. And accompanying that, one can no longer remember the names of close people. Inhalation becomes weak, exhalation becomes strong and lengthy, our sense of smell diminishes until it is no longer functional, and then internally what appears in the mind's eye, it's no longer smoke or mirage, but it's the appearance of fireflies or sparks kind of within a light smoke, fireflies or sparks. And then we have the fourth cycle of dissolution, which is the wind element dissolving. The wind element is our inhalation and exhalation factors. So inhalation and exhalation cease. We can't perform physical actions any longer. We're no longer mindful of external worldly activities or purposes. Our tongue becomes thick and short. The root of the tongue becomes bluish in color. We can no longer experience taste. We can't experience tactile sensations such as smoothness or roughness. And internally, there's no longer sparks or fireflies, but there may be the appearance of a candle-like flame about to go out. So those are the dissolutions of the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind. And then internally, there's more dissolution that goes on in terms of the winds within the body and physical movement. Our heartbeat stops and there's no discernible movement in our energy channels. And some people think that this is the end of the dying process, that death has come. But in fact, the consciousness, our consciousness has not yet left the body, and the consciousness at this point begins to experience the appearance of flame and then the clear space filled with white light. The winds in our left and right energy channels enter our heart area in our central channel, and then the appearance of very clear space filled with red light occurs. Then there's darkness and, and a feeling of swoon unconsciously it's said then a very very clear space free space fills the mind with the clear light of death and then here's where it gets very very interesting it's during this process this uh, cycle 
of dissolution that the mind begins to dissolve in the sense that coarser types of minds cease and subtler minds become manifest. Conceptuality ceases, dissolving into a mind of white appearances. Then the subtler mind to which only a space filled by white light appears is completely free of coarse conceptuality. And then this dissolves into the red appearance, as I mentioned, and then the black appearance. And then there's the, the notion of the, the, the indestructible drops, the white and red drops upon which our physical and mental health are based. The white is predominant at the top of the head and the red at the solar plexus. These drops have their origin in a white and red drop at the heart center, and this drop is the size of a small pea, has a white top and red bottom. This is called the indestructible drop since it lasts until death. The very subtle, life-bearing wind dwells inside it, and at death, all the winds ultimately dissolve into it, whereupon the clear light vision of death dawns. Then the indestructible drop opens, and its white and red parts separate, releasing the consciousness, which begins departing from the body. The white drop descends through the central channel, central energy channel, the shashumna, to emerge through the tip of the sex organ, and the red drop ascends through the shashumna central channel to emerge through the nostrils. When this happens, it is the sign that the consciousness has left the body and the process of dying has ended. Okay, so this is Mark Winwood broadcasting The Elegant Mind here on Valley 104.9 FM Community Radio, serving Duval, Carnation, Redmond Ridge, and all parts in between in Washington State's Lower Snoqualmie Valley. We're talking death, the dying process, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and we're going to continue in terms of talking about the minds, the mind that we have when we're dying, the gross mind, the subtle mind that we have when we're dying again. This all emerges from the centuries of mind science, life science, the Buddhist practices that were cultivated and perfected and then shared with the rest of the world. These coming from the Tibetan plateau, the Tibetan culture, quite remarkable, quite profound and spiritual, certainly, and scientific as well. Really so interesting, the practices, the perspectives of dying, death, and then the rebirth that takes place. So perhaps you've been able to get the sense how during this process of dying, the mind becomes more and more subtle and clear until it eventually reaches the point of the, quote, clear light of death, where it's said to be approximately nine times more clear than in the normal waking state. At this point, the mind separates from the body, taking with it all of the subtle imprints from that life and previous ones. These subtle imprints are also known as karmic seeds. This very subtle mind or consciousness and the very subtle wind upon which it rides then arises into the intermediate state or the bardo, where it takes on a subtle, non-physical body that can move through solid objects, travel anywhere just by thinking of that place, and so on. This intermediate state being stays in that state for up to seven weeks, 49 days, by which time a suitable place of rebirth is usually found. This place of rebirth is determined by the force of karma, whereby the intermediate state being dies and the consciousness is propelled without control toward the place of rebirth. The consciousness enters a fertilized egg, if it's to be a human rebirth, at or near the moment of conception, and the new life begins. Crucial in this whole process is the state of mind at the time of death, because it is this that determines the situation a person will be reborn into. If the mind is calm and peaceful and imbued with positive thoughts at the time of death, this will augur well for a happy rebirth. However, if the mind is in a state of anger or has strong desire or is fearful, confused, etc., this will predispose it to an unhappy or lower type of rebirth. 
the mind that arises at the time of death is usually the one that the person is most habituated to. This is important in the practice when we talk about preparing for death, preparing for the moment of death. Let me say that again. The mind that arises at the time of death is usually the one that the person is most habituated to. People tend to die in character, although this is not always so. So in the Buddhist tradition, it is emphasized strongly that the time to prepare for death is now, because if we develop and gain control over our mind now and create many positive causes, we will have a calm and controlled mind at the time of death, free of fear and confusion. In effect, our whole life is a preparation for death. And it's said that the mark of a spiritual practitioner is to have no regrets at the time of death. As a friend of mine said recently on hearing about these concepts, perhaps it's time I started cramming for the finals. <laughs> so there you have it, the notions of dying, death and dying in the Tibetan mind sciences. So once again, this is Mark Winwood, and you're listening to The Elegant Mind, broadcast on Valley 104.9 FM, serving Carnation Duval and the Redmond Ridge, and also streamed on the internet at www.valley1049.org. That's www.valley1049.org. Real-time streaming over the internet, listenable anywhere on the planet where the internet is available. So we have just a few minutes left in this program this week, and I'd like to share with you some of the characteristics of this bardo, some of the experiences that the mind, that each sentient mind encounters having departed the physical plane, having departed the body in which it was last resident, the vehicle in which it was last resident, and is being prepared for its next incarnation. So the mind, the, the bardo being that the mind becomes, known as a Gandharva, has five characteristics. First, they take the rough shape of their next rebirth. For example, if a human is going to take rebirth as a dog, his bardo body will be in the shape of a dog. And if a dog is going to take rebirth as a human, its bardo body will be in the rough shape of a human. Bardo beings arise instantaneously with fully formed limbs, sense powers, and so on. They have contaminated miracle powers. For example, their bodies are not impeded by solid matter, so they can, for example, travel through walls and mountains, and they possess clairvoyance. Their vision is not impaired by material things. They can see through physical objects such as houses and they can see things at a great distance. Only bardo beings can perceive other bardo beings. Ordinary humans, except some with limited powers of clairvoyance, are unable to see them. Immediately after our death, we will take the form of a bardo being with these characteristics. Rebirth, in the context in which we're speaking, in the context of the Tibetan life and mind sciences, means an uncontrolled rebirth. By uncontrolled, I mean we have no control. We have no say whatsoever at the time in terms of where and how we're going to take rebirth. We are propelled toward that destination based upon the karma the inclinations that we've planted in our mind through our most recent incarnations as well. Human beings experience human suffering because they've taken human rebirth. Animals experience animal suffering because they've taken animal rebirth. Samsaric rebirth, cyclic existence, samsaric rebirth is the basis from which all the sufferings of the various realms of existence arise. The destination and experiences of rebirth are very closely tied in to the condition of our mind as we're going through the dying process. When we're dying, if our last gross mind is virtuous, it will cause the good potentialities carried in our mind to ripen as a virtuous mental action that will lead us directly to a virtuous and beneficial rebirth. A virtuous mind at death is said to be like water, it nourishes the virtuous potentialities, the karmic inclinations that remain like dry seeds within our consciousness. 
If two kinds of seeds, barley seeds and wheat seeds, are sown in a field but only the wheat seeds are watered, these will be certain to ripen first. In a similar way, when we still carry both virtuous and non-virtuous potentialities within our mind, which as sentient beings we all do, a virtuous mind at the time of death will ensure that our virtuous potentialities are the ones that will ripen. And this holds even if we've led an immoral life and committed many non-virtuous actions. However, we don't escape the effects of our non-virtuous deeds. If we take a human rebirth, our life may be afflicted with great suffering, or our lifespan may be short. If we do not purify negative karmic seeds, negative karmic inclinations, we shall eventually experience the fully ripened effect of those actions by taking rebirth potentially in the lower realms. So the point here, and the reason that I'm sharing this with you, these last ideas with you, is to perhaps communicate, hopefully communicate effectively, that the conditions of our death, and I don't mean the physical conditions of our death, because sometimes those are completely beyond our control, but the atmosphere, the conditions of our mind, the direction that our mind takes upon that moment of death when it emerges from the body, emerges from the vehicle, and goes off in the direction of its next rebirth are completely dependent upon us, completely dependent upon what we've been able to fill our mind with, the potentialities, the inclinations, the karmic seeds, based upon the way we've lived our lives and the things that we've done in our lives the more virtuous, beneficial karmic seeds that we have in our mind, the greater the chance, the greater the potential that at that moment as death is approaching, our mind will be in a loving, fertile, virtuous place and therefore thrust or propel our mind in the direction of a similar type of experience in the bardo and rebirth once the mind emerges from the bardo. If not, if our life is filled with moments of, of greed or envy, if the last thing that we're thinking about as we're dying is, is our will and who gets what and who doesn't get what, and there's possessiveness and self-centeredness, then that is the mind that will determine the destination and the experience of what occurs when the mind emerges from our body into the bardo towards its next rebirth. So that's uh, a summary of Death, Dying, and Rebirth from the Tibetan Mind Sciences. And this is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind on Valley 104.9 FM radio in the Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to theelegantmind at valley1049.org. I'll get that email and I'll respond. We do meetings. We do online teachings. We're very active here in the valley with the notions of Tibetan mind science, life science, Tibetan Buddhism, sharing these ideas. And if you'd like more information about what we do and why we do it, you can go to our website, which is www.chenrizikproject.org. That's www.chenrizikproject.org. Org. Again, this is Mark Winwood. We'll be back in the weeks to come. Thank you so very much for listening. Bye-bye.